0: Welcome to Medical Minefield, the podcast where we talk about the ethical dilemmas at the heart of the health stories that matter the most. I'm Barney Kalman.
1: And I'm Eve Simmons.
0: And we're health journalists, which means we spend our lives asking tough questions to top experts so you don't have to.
1: This week we're asking, at what point does grief become a mental health problem that may need treatment?
0: As ever, we'd like to know what you think, so if you have a question or a suggestion for us at Medical Minefield... Tweet us at MedMinefield. So this week I've been doing a bit of research into into grief, not because of Prince Harry, although I'm sure it would set our ratings alight if we had some kind of hot take on that. But Tessa Dunlop, one of our writers, a regular contributors. Uh, is writing about a phenomenon called preemptive grief. Her mum's her only remaining parent and has always been the matriarch of the family, now is becoming increasingly reliant on help, can't keep up as fast as she once could, etc. And it's all taking its toll on Tessa. She says she's being quite angry and mean to her mum, but really if she analyses what's going on, it's because she's seeing this mortality, this looming, this idea that her mum's not going to live forever. And so she she has preemptive grief. And it's well recognized that preemptive grief is a thing, that it can hit you before a person dies. And it can make us behave in in unexpected ways. So obviously we think about the sadness and depression, I suppose, mm-hmm. that might be characterized by losing someone very close to us. It's 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 a natural reaction. But anger and anxiety and a whole heap of other emotions can also surface. And this is all part, an accepted part of the grieving process. But looking into it, it's reminded me of a a fascinating and evolving area of medical research that seems to increasingly identify when grief becomes a mental illness. Now, all the research that I've read and all the guidelines that I've read seem to say that grief is a natural part of life and losing someone and that
1: that it shouldn't be pathologized it's
0: not pathologized that it's transient and people do as terrible as it is to lose someone you care about that life does go on for people and they do cope hmm. interestingly last March, the DSM-5, often called the Bible of psychiatry in America, moved to classify something called prolonged grief disorder. So intense feelings of grief that last for a year or more may require treatment. So antidepressants, therapy, sleeping pills, other kinds of medical treatments.
1: And how do you define that that is a prolonged grief and not a any other depression? Is there a criteria like you have to be thinking about the person that you've lost 25 times a day or whatever it is?
0: I think the main criteria seems to be that the grief has intensified, that things are worsening, that your ability to cope is not improving. Like any illness, mm-hmm. that it, it's getting worse, not better. And so requires treatment. But obviously, this has been controversial. It was floated as as early as mid-1990s that if you're grieving, you should be offered antidepressants. And many people felt that this was taking things too far. And in fact, you know, it could be counterproductive. It's a fascinating area, and particularly because there is a broadening of the understanding of grief. So looking at the NHS guidelines for grief, they immediately recognize that grief doesn't necessarily need to be for the death of someone that Mm. you could grieve for uh, your loss of a
1: relationship
0: or a lost Mm -hmm. job Mm. or you know people could be feeling intense grief because all their hair falls out Mm. there's all kinds of triggers for these kinds of intense feelings of loss Mm -hmm. So presumably, if if you could never get over that, then you might end up being uh, pathologised, for want of a better word. I mean, it's an interesting debate. I I don't pretend to have have the answer to that. I've got mercifully little experience of feeling intense grief. I mean, what do you think? You've written about this before because you've written very openly about the loss of your father when Mm, you
2: were a kid. mm, mm.
1: I think that grief is it's difficult term, isn't it? Because really what it means is complicated and difficult emotions that are related to a particular event in your life. You can call that grief or you can call that misery or you can call that depression or sadness or loss. The common factor is that somebody died and that's what it's related to. But I think that those kind of events can affect people in a host of different ways. And I don't know how helpful it is to label everything on a death because we are the product of so many different experiences. And lots of things have happened to me in my life that I could say all were due to the fact that my dad died when I was 12. But I think that would be disingenuous and not true. And how would how would I possibly know that? So yeah, I think that we are all complicated beings and it's it's too simplistic to put difficult emotions down to one event
0: uh, reluctant to bring it back to harry but i mean you know it. this is anyway. it's a very similar scenario isn't mm. it because obviously he he lost his, his mother died when he was 12 i think yeah and and people are hypothesizing this week that all of this uh, acting out that's going on at the moment is possibly a delayed form of grieving
1: i think you grieve differently depending on who it is that you've lost, and at what point in your life. I can only really speak to losing somebody close to you when you're a child, much like Prince Harry. And I believe, well, from personal experience, that it changes depending on which stage you're at in your life, and it might not be as obvious. So, for instance, in my 20s, I became very similar to what you're saying that Tessa's saying, that I became very angry with my mother not being able to help with certain things that maybe a father figure could, like I bought a flat and I wanted somebody to be able to come and fix things. And it put a bit of a strain on the relationship with my mum. And that was really because it was part of it was grief for my dad that he wasn't there. And that's why that was so difficult for me, that if he was there, it wouldn't be so hard to lug heavy boxes around and fix things in a flat, etc. And I took it out on my mum because it was easy to do. And that really is grief, but it's, it's not necessarily, you wouldn't necessarily think of it in that way. So I think depending on where you are in your life and at what point it can come out in different ways. And I, I think that maybe that's what's happening to Harry, but I think there's lots of different, I mean, that life is not one that many of us <laughs> have lived. So Thankfully.
0: Well, before we go any further, let's speak to historian author broadcaster and general all-round brilliant person Tessa Dunlop who's writing this week in the mail on Sunday about her experiences of of something called preemptive grief. Tessa take me through a bit first of all we we've been talking about this for months. I saw a tweet that you'd put out a picture of you and your mum on a beach. It just sounded very much like you were sort of apologising. You said that you weren't as nice to her as you, you wanted to be sometimes.
3: Basically, the gist of it is I have been historically for the last 48 years in in a sort of very loving way, fairly brutal with my mum in that mother-daughter complex scenario that I think at least 50% of women go through. You look back at your photographs of me and my mum in my childhood village and it looks so idyllic. We look alert and well and in love as a mother and daughter ideally should be. And then I remember that I was a bit of a cow to her. And because I live a long way off in London, I get this feeling, quite pronounced feeling of guilt. Like, God, why can't I do that better? Why can't I execute my relationship with my mother on the ground better? And I always thought that as I grew up and became more mature, I would get better at it. When I had my own children, I'd be more grateful and I'd get better at it. But actually, it's getting almost harder as she gets older. In fact, it's got considerably harder because I realized that I took her health and her energy and her vim for life for granted. And now it's started to slide. I'm coming to the realization that, oh my goodness, she's not going to last forever. I can't manage this at the moment. I feel like I'm already overwhelmed. And rather than being sympathetic with her and patient, I find I'm brusque. I'm like one of those caricatures of exactly what you shouldn't do. And I know I shouldn't. And the result is, what should be this idyllic time together actually it's quite ratty and we wind each other up and then the guilt sets in and it's like a sort of vicious circle.
0: There's something else as well and, and I think you've discovered this area of understanding that we grieve in many ways before losing someone and, and it's called... Preemptive grief, it's well recognised that anger is part of that, as with other kinds of grief. That being angry with the person that you've lost is part of grief. But I suppose if you're yet to lose them and you're grieving, you're going to get angry with them and they're there.
3: It's interesting you, you flag up the anger point because I think there are huge numbers of emotions going on. And key, I think, in this equation is that my dad's dead. And so my mum she's my all and everything in terms of my relationship with my own past, with my childhood. If she goes, then that, my whole kind of framework, this idea that really in my head, I live still in Scotland, in the Highlands, that all vanishes too. And to be able to remain where she lives in the village, that requires a degree of physical stamina, which clearly at the moment is on the slide. And on some days she wants to tell me that's it. I'm going to leave Ranak, I'm going to pack up. I'm going to, and I don't want to hear it. And on other days, I'm thinking, right, I've got to tell her she needs a living carer. And she doesn't want to hear it. And I'm very gratified, actually, to speak with brilliant professor of the care of old people, Adam Gordon. He's quite brilliant. And he said, the thing is, the process is never linear. You take one step back and two forwards, three back and one forward. And also, because I live so far away, sometimes I'll catch her on good form. And then I'll go up there and and things have flipped a bit. I, I can hear her on the telephone, but we're slightly out of kilter with each other. And that distance, which I think huge numbers of modern families experience, exacerbates feelings of guilt and also a feeling of being out of control. It doesn't feel stable and secure like it used to, that relationship, which I've had all my life. And I know that sounds immature, but I'm used to having it there. And now it feels like it's, it's moving and I'm not ready for it to move, Barney, which is unforgivable.
0: Something that you wrote in, in your piece that really touched me personally was uh, you're still under the illusion that your mum's going to live forever.
3: Absolutely.
0: I suppose uh, it's something about coming to terms with that, isn't it? That, you know, like the Queen, that at some point, you know, they they go.
3: Yeah, they do go. It's about the end game. We're very bad at talking about death. And also we're pretty ageous that actually mum is really harsh on herself. She very much embraced the idea that 70 is the new 50 and, and made plans for her retirement that never included sort of downsizing or anything as pedestrian as that. It was a sort of never-never land, a Peter Pan fairyland that we went into. She actually extended her house for the grandchildren, in inverted commas, even though they live hundreds of miles away. And I kind of went with her in that fantasy because who, who wants to plan for the end? And, and actually the reality is the average person has 20 years of retirement, 10 of those are good, and 10 are more of a sticky wicket, both physically and if you're really unlucky, mentally. And I think knowing that's going to happen is quite difficult if you want to remain optimistic and upbeat about the future. So much of the way we talk about life is about controlling our health, controlling our future, being well, well well-being. And then suddenly, oh no, inevitably, that is all going to crumble and the modern mindset isn't ready for that and also we don't live alongside age i'm not living in the village watching all Mum's peers decline with her effectively i'm down here in in london where i think the average age is 38 i mean i feel like a geriatric on the tube so i think there's lots of different reasons why my behavior has been wanting around my mother and in some respects so has hers because we don't do old age really do we as a society
0: yeah so it's a two-way street and i imagine this is is going to be a process that you continue to look at
3: can i throw in one other thought when my dad died i was in my early 30s i had lots of time i didn't have young children i know this sounds ridiculous and i adored him but there was almost something glamorous about it because it was exceptional none of my other friends dads were dying Okay, now my mum is dying. Lots of my friends' parents are falling apart. And at the same time, it feels much more personal because I'm a woman and I'm a woman of a certain age. My sight's deteriorating, my periods are drying up. Oh my goodness, I too am withering on the vine. And it almost is like looking at an uncomfortable reflection of where I'm headed in a way that my father, when I was 30, different gender, different time, I'm in, in the immortal period of youth still. On top of that, I have young children. So it's like a perfect storm, really. And one that I know that so many of us are working through because I did have existential angst, Barney, just this morning. I thought, God, I'm going to get trolled. Everyone's going to think, who is that completely ITCH, not being nice to her mother? And then I rang up my mum and mum said, Tessa, I'm sure that there's lots of daughters just as vile as you, darling. Now she said, I'm off to greet the photographers for the Daily Mail. She was frightfully pleased with her mission.
0: <laughs> just about everyone who's seen uh, the line on our schedule has said that they think it's something that their wives or they recognise. I'm seeing him uh,
1: nodding ferociously. <laughs>
4: <throughout>.
0: <laughs> but look, Tessa, thanks so much for, for finding time to join us. It's, it's been a pleasure as always.
3: Lots of love. Bye. Bye, Barney. Bye,
1: I wonder how much of Tessa's guilt is related to physical distance, because I really heard in that the interesting relationship that my brother has with my mother, because he lives very far away in Los Angeles and he is incredibly impatient with my mother. He has No sympathy for her funny, silly little ways. If she doesn't understand anything technological, he has no time for it. And I think that it's because he feels so guilty that he lives so far away and he's not physically here to help. So I guess it's a similar kind of thing in that it's all wrapped up in this strange sense of guilt we all have about our parents. But perhaps it's exacerbated if you know that you can't be the help that perhaps you want to be
0: i'm interested in the idea that it might be that we might be over pathologizing normal behavior though because obviously you know there is that concern that if you tell people this is going to hurt it will whereas i certainly think generations ago there was an attitude well i mean years ago i wrote about pet bereavement i mean victorians gave children pets in order to get them accustomed to, to death, death, yeah it was one of the things that that was seen as beneficial to having a domestic pet that it gives you a view of the cycle of life that is natural. However, now we prize our pets, we value our pets that they are such an integral part of our lives that when you can't pet,
1: imagine that they may one day not be here.
0: well when a pet dies, some people just completely go do over it i mean it's just beyond grief and and, and I suppose maybe it I'm being a bit esoteric here, but, you know, perhaps as, as we've kind of insulated ourselves from many realities of lives and that, that, that people do live longer and people do live healthier lives that that I suppose.
1: We're killing ourselves that they're going to be alive forever.
0: Yeah. And our, and, and ourselves, too. I, I, I always remember my dad, the death of his father, aged 59, was hugely significant to him outliving his father so when he turned 60 it was a real moment for him that he'd crossed that kind of threshold and and people did lose lose their parents much younger generations ago i mean nowadays it's it's very common for people to have parents in their 80s 90s
1: what you were talking about in terms of the natural cycle of life there's something very different about an older person who has had a very full life and comes to the end of it and that's the natural way of of things and obviously it's sad but that's not something about for instance what happened in, to me and lots of other people when they have a parent who or somebody else who dies way beyond their years that's tragic and that is unfair and that's kind of wrapped up in feelings of anger i feel
0: yeah i, I suppose different kinds of grief are going to cause different effects on people so so the loss of a child is is always going to be harrowing isn't it
1: The hierarchy of grief is so interesting, isn't it? Because my cousin died when he was 21 and his mother or or somebody in the family once said to me, oh, that's much worse than what happened to you. For his parents to lose their child is much worse than losing a parent, no matter what age you are. And I remember thinking, yeah, God, she's right. And my mum was so furious because she said there's no competition. Each grief is the same grief. But I guess... Some grief is perhaps more painful, more complicated than others. I don't know.
0: Well, let's hear a medical perspective next.
1: Joining us now is Dr. Claire Girarda, who is president of the Royal College of GPs and is a family doctor with a special interest in mental health. Dr. Girarda, do you think that grief can ever be classified as a mental health problem?
4: Oh, yes. I mean, grief isn't a mental health problem, not in itself. It's not a psychiatric disorder, but it can most certainly become one. If people become stuck in their grieving, if they can't, to use the jargon move on, if they find that they just can't enjoy life, they're having poor sleep, that suicidal thoughts are increasing, they can't get out of bed, they start to get bodily symptoms, yes, of course it can become a psychiatric disorder, most commonly depression. And so, when
0: would it become that? Is it a length of time or is it severity of symptoms?
4: Both, really. I I run a group for those bereaved following the death through suicide of a doctor, and the people in that group, some of them are still grieving 10 to 15 years after their loss. But I wouldn't say they have an abnormal grief response. It's just grief is a very personal experience. And people listening to this who have lost somebody even 15, 20 years ago will still be grieving them. So, it's not just a time issue. It's more a, a severity, more of what it prevents you doing. So if, for example, you're five, six years down the line and you still can't return to work or you're getting no enjoyment from the grandchildren, every time you go shopping or every time you see the hat of your loved ones in the cupboard, you, you burst into tears and you disintegrate and can't move on, then that was probably entering the what we would call abnormal or complex grief response.
1: Dr. Gerard, are you a practising GP? You see patients with mental health problems a yes. lot, I imagine. What kind of percentage, roughly, would you say are related to grief? What, what kind of burden does grief hold uh, in terms of mental health problems?
4: Well, that's a really good question, actually, because if you say grief is equals to loss, then loss is is a very common feature of depression. Very, very common. So not just loss of a loved person, but loss of a job, loss of certainty, loss of status. And if you think about COVID and you think about what people went through during COVID, it wasn't just the loss through death. It was loss through certainty. Many people lost their work and and actually, that is a major trigger for depression, absolutely a major life event. So, And it's a grief response. If people have lost their job, they go through the same emotions. They go through anger, denial, trying to find meaning. So in my consulting room, if I turn grief into the, the other word, which I say is loss, then it's a very common feature. Very, very common.
0: Claire, the DSM guide in the States, the the guidelines produced for for psychiatrists in the States last year, uh, had a new category for prolonged grief disorder. And this came up with guidelines for treatment and, I suppose, criteria that needed to be met for that treatment to be warranted. Critics at the time said that they disagreed with this, saying that if you tell someone they're disordered, you can almost worsen the situation. What do you say to that?
4: I quite agree with the critics. The Americans have a, a great propensity for medicalizing normal emotions. And to a certain extent, they do this because it is the only way, unless you put a diagnosis onto something, of people actually accessing any treatment any care because people with because of insurance yes. so people with a normal grief response might benefit from talking to someone doesn't mean they've got a psychiatric diagnosis it just might and we think of that with cruise that the fabulous charity that helps people with bereavement so in america they have an enormous propensity to, to medicalize so for example they might medicalize shyness so i would absolutely agree and i would hesitate really hesitate to put a time limit on grief. I think the American diagnosis is within two weeks. Well, as I said, I look after people who have been bereaved many years ago, and they are not suffering from a psychiatric disorder. They're suffering from a a normal emotion to an abnormal situation. The loss of somebody they loved with my group through a route that is a very stigmatized route, but they do not suffer from a psychiatric diagnosis. And most people listening to this with grief will not be suffering from a psychiatric diagnosis. It doesn't mean they're not sad. It doesn't mean they're not causing worries to their loved ones. It doesn't mean they don't need your support and your help. But to put a label on it, I would be really anxious about that.
1: And other than talking therapies, Claire, and and perhaps in extreme circumstances or or just severe circumstances, medication, what advice would you give to somebody who is experiencing grief and in that period where those emotions are incredibly acute?
4: My sense is, number one, I don't think medication is at the extreme. I think sometimes medication really does help, especially if part of the grief response is terrible insomnia. It is not a bad thing. We, we sometimes demonise medication. It's not a bad thing to give somebody something just in the very short term to ease some of those symptoms.
1: So you could you could prescribe antidepressants for grief and not necessarily depression and someone wasn't necessarily depressed. I'm not talking about antidepressants. I'm
4: actually talking about a short course of sleeping pills. If people really have got terrible insomnia, the moment they go to bed, for example, somebody might imagine they're seeing their loved one. They might have nightmares. They might have flashbacks. And sometimes just two to three days of trying to normalize sleep if it's been really abnormal, can help. So I'm not talking about antidepressants, I'm talking about uh, just a very short course of something to help sleep. In fact, you can use over-the-counter treatment just to ease. Something you touched on earlier was
0: a broadening in understanding of what causes grief. The reason we're talking about grief this week was because we're doing a piece in the paper about preemptive grief, uh, that you can start grieving for someone before they've gone, and it can make you behave in all kinds of unexpected ways, like any grief can. I mean, would you say that perhaps someone with preemptive grief or, for instance, grief for the loss of a job or, you know, loss of their hair. I've heard many people say they grieve for their hair when, you know, especially women who've never been able to have their hair grow back after chemo say losing their hair was terrible and they grieve for the way they looked. You know, perhaps these people could benefit from treatment also.
4: I think that's right. I've never thought of it as preemptive grief. So I look after doctors who have had complaints and a complaint, especially a serious complaint, Or even if you take it away from doctors, people who know they're going to leave their job, who maybe lost their job, all sorts of things, can lead to a grief response that you can preempt is going to lead to anger, denial and all the things that we know. And sometimes, really sometimes, I might say to that individual, look, the chances are you are going to get depressed. You're already ruminating about what's going on because the things are always worse at night. You're already at nighttime fretting over it. You're already catastrophizing, thinking it's a lot worse than it is. You may not meet the diagnosis for depression, but actually let's keep an open mind and start antidepressants sooner rather than later. Now, I'm not saying that everybody in that situation should be taking antidepressants but there's certainly certainly a group of people that you can say this is more than likely going to lead to a depressive illness because we know from the literature we know from you the individual what this loss will mean to you and let's keep a close eye on you and really have a low threshold
0: Mm. starting well dr claire gerardo thanks so much for finding time to talk to us
4: pleasure and thank you very much for doing such a painful subject
0: so what do you think about that eve you've come out in defense of of antidepressants many a time but i'm not sure you totally agree with what claire was saying about preemptively giving people antidepressants to make sure that they don't get depressed uh, because of a loss
1: I think that is perhaps a little extreme. I don't know. I think obviously you have to take each individual as they come and whatever somebody is experiencing is going to be completely different from what the next person is experiencing and what one person can tolerate, another person can't. But I think that preempting how somebody will feel in the next two weeks or month and giving them a medication for that seems like not the most sensible option.
0: Well, next, let's hear from someone who has personal experience in helping people through grief. Joining us now is Anna Lyons, who is an end-of-life doula. Anna, thanks very much for finding time to talk to us. First of all, could you just explain for our listeners exactly what it is that you do?
2: I support people living with life-limiting illness Usually from diagnosis, I support them practically and emotionally. I work with them directly. I work with their family and their friends. And then after they've died, I continue and I do grief support.
0: The reason we're talking today is we're looking broadly at the medical debate around the classification of grief as a mental illness. Yeah. In America, they have an insurance-based system in which you have to have a proper diagnosis to get any kind of treatment, and that has to be categorised. And so last year they categorised something called prolonged grief disorder. What do you say? I mean, when does grief stop becoming a natural part of the process of losing someone and, and, and move into becoming a mental health problem?
2: I don't think it ever stops. You know, we know now that grief lasts a lifetime. We know now that there are no five stages of grief. And we also know that grief is unique to everybody. Before they came up with prolonged grief disorder, we would call it complicated grief. And complicated grief is basically where people are unable to function on any kind of sort of normal plane after very many years of loss. I think disorder is a really problematic term because... What that actually means is that it's disturbed normal functioning. And actually what grief is, is a very healthy, very normal response to loss. But I think one of the problems is we don't talk about what grief looks like. And so when people are grieving for the first time, it can feel really, really unmanageable. And like you don't really know what's happening because we just don't talk about it enough.
0: But I suppose for a doctor or a GP who might be trying to support someone through this difficult time, they might look to medical guidelines to know when to prescribe sleeping pills or antidepressants. You know, should antidepressants be given at some point?
2: I think antidepressants are really problematic because grief isn't depression. I think when it's You know, you can be depressed and grieving at the same time, but I think it's really, really important to know that grief and depression are not the same thing. I also think it changes the human experience of it. But having said that, what I might find tolerable in my grief might not be something that you find tolerable. And I know for some people, having a diagnosis can make them feel better. It can make them feel like they understand what's going on for them.
1: Anna, when you were talking about complicated grief, one thing that interested me was you said you would define it as someone that can't function on any sort of normal plane. What does that actually mean? And how would you differentiate uh, between someone who obviously was having emotional difficulties that were very clearly related to grief and somebody who was depressed, for instance? Is is it quite clear-cut other than obviously having had a recent bereavement?
2: It's never clear-cut and actually complicated grief we would tend to use that term much, much, much later, years down the line of the loss. And it would be where somebody has been unable to be able to carry on with their life as normal. There's a really beautiful model of grief called growing around grief. And it's where we acknowledge that the loss remains the same size, but our life grows and supports us in our grief. And so some days we actually feel okay, we can get on with stuff, we can go to work, we don't burst into tears, we can function. And complicated grief sort of comes into play where there are no days, a very, very long time after the initial loss. There are no days at all where any kind of normal everyday life can happen.
0: Something you said when you explained what you did was that you work with families uh, who are dealing with a terminal illness. One of the reasons we're talking about this today is because we're discussing the phenomenon of preemptive grief. Is that something you see?
2: Yeah, so we call that anticipatory grief.
0: We have a writer that's talking about the fact that she's suddenly grappling with her mother's gradual decline, and it's making our writer. Behave in terrible ways that she doesn't recognise in herself. It's making her, it's making her very angry with her mum.
2: Yep, that's really normal, and I think that's the thing about normalising grief. The more we talk about it, grief is a really human experience. But because we don't talk about it enough, people think that something wrong with them when they're grieving they think that they must be behaving abnormally they must have some kind of disorder if they feel really angry towards the person who is unwell well, why do people get angry because grief equates to loss and when you have a life that you like when you have a life where you've planned a future with somebody or where their presence in your life enhances it makes it better you know serves you the thought that they're not going to be there doing that anymore of course people are furious about it they're also furious because they look around and other people have got their parents or their children or you know whoever their best friend their partner It's like, how come they get to live out their lives the way they planned with the people that they love why do I have to live with this Mm.
0: Our writer Tessa specifically gets cross with her mum and then she feels terribly guilty.
2: Yeah, absolutely. Well, she's cross with her because she feels she's mm. leaving her. Yeah. And I think one of the other things to remember it's really important in that parent-child dynamic is that it doesn't matter how old you are, you will always be a child to your parents. You'll always be their baby. It doesn't matter if you're 50 or 60, you're still their child. And actually, there was a lot of writing about how you know people go home for Christmas and they fall into that dynamic where even when they're 40 years old, they react to their parents as if they were 14. I know that. And <laughs> but I wonder if Tess is doing that. I wonder if she thinks, "Well, hang on a minute, this isn't bloody fair. How come my mum's leaving me? She should be here to look after me." So I think it's a—it's yeah. really normal that she would feel cross with her.
1: I wonder if it's almost easier to attach blame to the parent rather than think about feeling sad about the prospect of why you might be feeling upset or miserable.
2: Yes, sometimes, but I, I also think you just go through everything. I think you go through every gamut of emotion. I think you go through every feeling. You go back through them, you know, it's not just that you get angry or and then you get sad and then you get this. I think you can feel angry and desperately sad and bewildered and all sorts of things all within the space of, you know, 30 seconds sometimes. Do you
0: need to go through those if you medicate someone? would you interfere with the process?
2: I think medication uh, in grief is really problematic because also what it can do is fog your memory of things. And I think the only way to live with grief is to grieve. You know, you can support people, therapy really helps, going to group therapy can really help. Feeling like you're not alone, speaking to other people who are grieving, all of those things can help. I think that medication is something that should be an absolutely final resort. I used to live in America, and they did very often medicate people for grief, especially initially, especially in those first stages of absolutely raw howling grief in traumatic sort of death situations and one of the big problems with that is that once you come out of the fog of it I had lots of clients who didn't remember anything they didn't remember the funeral they didn't remember going to see their person who died and they felt cheated out of that because it's such a big part of grieving And absolutely, you know, like everything, there does reach a point where if you say, this is intolerable, I have lived with this for so many years, then absolutely go and do whatever you need to do to feel better. But I think we should never be quick to hand over medication in order to subdue grief or to, you know, make it more palatable for us, because grief is so messy. And I think. We need people to see that messy grief is a normal human experience and we need to not pathologise it.
0: Well, Anna, thanks so much for finding some time to talk to us.
2: It's a pleasure. Thank you for asking. I really appreciate it.
0: I wouldn't say that I suffer from any kind of pre-emptive grief because my mum is in pretty robust health, but I do dread it and I think about it a lot, maybe more than is normal. I, I do think about how much of a hole it's going to leave in my life when my mum's not around and I tried to talk to her about it the other day she was very unsympathetic oh really she was what, what do you mean
1: <laughs> my mum likes to talk about it all the
0: time oh really yeah does that help you no. come to terms with the fact that she's going to pop well, her well clogs out. one day um, <laughs>
1: Not really, because she says things like, when I die, you'll get my crockery. Oh, well,
0: Yeah, I mean, my mum says stuff like that. And obviously, well, at the start of the pandemic, she made us re-sign all the papers she made us sign before about power of attorney and power of this and that and the other. And she stipulated that she didn't want to be put on a ventilator. Oh, I
4: remember
0: that. Which uh, I, I didn't think was out of character, but I think my brother was a bit floored by that one. You know, I mean, I would always respect someone's wishes, but I can imagine we'd have a rare about that.
1: Whenever I've thought about it, I've thought it's one of those events that I expect will be so earth shattering that I imagine I will just cope with it like I have other difficult things you and just don't not know though, about it. Yeah, you, you just don't know. Yeah.
0: But thinking about what Anna was saying that, you know, you have to go through it. I am a wimp. I, I am absolutely the first person to uh, the uh, the mere hint of a headache take ibuprofen and paracetamol together and take it regularly until there's definitely no chance of that headache ever happening one of the reasons i don't drink is because it just makes me feel a, a slightly bit under the weather i am a complete wuss and i tell you what i imagine i'll be reaching for those sleeping pills and antidepressants to make sure that i don't know i go- do I want to remember every painful emotion? And...
1: Well, I don't know what uh, medication that was that made you forget funerals, but uh, <laughs> I wouldn't say no. <laughs> exactly.
0: But I, I mean, I understand we, we, we have these these rights and there is something incredibly cathartic having been through the loss of a parent with my ex. I mean, something we don't generally do these days, something that's much more unusual is, is staying with the body of a, a lost loved one. You don't see the person after they die or you, you may be with them when they die. But I remember when I was a kid, uh, the husband of a, a friend of my family's died and, and there was a kind of pre-drinks to the funeral and the body was there in the kitchen table in a, in a coffin. Gosh.
1: Well, in Judaism, you sit for seven days on a very low chair in a room and you cover up all the mirrors and you're not allowed to do anything and everyone has to cook for you. And you all you have to do is sit there and think about the dead person for a week.
0: But not with the body, because you put them in the ground no, not quite early the body, on.
1: Yeah. yeah, the body's already in the ground. But still, it's longing it out, as they say, as the kids yeah. say.
0: But there was something very cathartic about the funeral. Uh, there were so many different things that I saw them all go through as a family and obviously trying to kind of be respectful and supportive in going and getting cups of tea and w- whatever else you can possibly do. But there was definitely a process to it that I think might have been hindered had someone swooped in with medication although still give me the ones that make you forget (laughs) I say you can read all about this cheerful subject in this weekend's The Mail on Sunday and you can consume that in newspaper format on the Mail Plus website and the Mail app
1: we'll be back with another topic on Medical Minefield next week see you then
0: goodbye